The era of big government is over. If the new bureaucracy delivered on their promises, it was going to be a wonderful world. But if something went wrong... Welcome to Extended Clip. It's episode 33 of the After Hours feed. And um, we're talking about the new Adam Curtis. Can't Get You Out of My Head by Kylie Minogue is the new film by Adam Curtis. Uh, it is a six-part documentary series. And uh, I, don't, I don't think we're going to painstakingly go through part by part uh, because it's like 480 minutes long and that might require a seven-hour podcast. But I think we can have a little chat about our initial thoughts. Right, boys? Absolutely. I mean, um, I think what, what's fun about Adam Curtis, right, there's never a shortage of things to talk about. You know, he's got a, a lot of different subjects he's bringing up. And I don't know, I feel we're all like, we, we're all pretty much familiar with Curtis's work. We've all seen at least like a few of them, I would say. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And like this one definitely feels like he's touching on a lot of the same themes from the other ones, but kind of, uh, I don't know, this one feels a lot more conclusive in a way the, the, when it all comes down to it or not conclusive but like um he just he's he's contained a lot of his different ideas that he's done in other documentaries and it feels all all of it is in here yeah it's like a culmination of like th- like themes he's been working at but i also feel like stylistically he does a lot here that's really fun and adventurous mm-hmm. which i mean like exists in his other films but i think he really indulges and does a lot of cool stuff with form as well. So this, uh, I don't know. And just like the epic scale of it all, it feels like the ultimate Curtis film. Yeah, I mean, talking about form, not in terms of putting one image next to the other, but in terms of structuring the narrative of a five-part documentary, uh, it's really incredible what he's able to accomplish here. He weaves this very multifaceted tale kind of uh, the UK, the US, China, and R- Russia, and the Middle East kind of uh, one tier below that in terms of how much screen time, at least. Uh, but I don't know, it never feels like he's very like cut and dry doing this episode on the 50s and 60s, this one on the 70s. It's like more of organized by ideas and by people who had ideas rather than a strict chronology uh it's just like i mean the subtitle is an emotional history right Mm -hmm. uh and i i think that's what it's doing is it's like it's not going the strict chronology like even like something like hyper normalization i feel like it's a really good chronology of media and uh like american foreign policy pretty much leading up to uh when it came out this one, because of its emotional history, yeah, it feels a lot more kind of scattershot. And there are montages that bring together ideas that don't seem to go together. Uh, but yeah, he's able to link together all of these different ideas he's worked with throughout his career. And just from what I've seen of it, because I haven't finished it yet, but it kind of reminds me of Century of the Self as well as Hypernormalization. Uh, in just like the two, I guess, different approaches to a narrative of the last, you know, however long. Yeah. And I, you know, like just kind of, you know, following his work, like it seems like at the beginning, you know, maybe like with Century of Self and some other ones, there's a lot more reliance, not reliance, but just use of like talking heads and interviews and stuff like that. And as his career progresses, 
and I think hypernormalization doesn't have many interviews uh, either, but this one, you know, barely has any, it has like old interview clips, uh, you know, a lot of them. And, you know, uh, Curtis, he's, you know, he says individual about 50 times in this documentary, if not more, <laughs> a lot of words that he, he repeats, um, not, not a criticism. It doesn't get bored, but you know, you, you know what, what's being talked about here. I love to hear him play the hits like that. When you see yeah. that woman whose like brain was destroyed by like uh, MK Ultra style yeah. like things, it's like, oh, I'm so happy to see you again. Yeah, that's, that's so funny. Yeah, he was he was using like clips from I think Century of the Self, right? Mm. That yeah uh, yeah yeah. So that that um, you know, we love great artists who reference themselves, right? <laughs> the Curtis has deemed himself part of history. No, of course and i think that he does a really great job in the very first segment of uh or i guess the first part if we're calling them each parts uh the first part where uh just the the linkage of his british narrative and his chinese narrative for to give one example of how he's able to move from one of these grand narratives to the other you know he's showing all these post-war british woes and this you know society that was starting to be built out uh and then and like the rise of individualism of course and then you just see a chinese train with mao's face on it heading toward the camera (laughs) and then you get that amazing shot right after like the animated graphic of mao uh and you meet you know uh you meet uh uh, Jang Qing for the first time, kind of, and she becomes this main character for the China arc, if you will, and her relationship with Mao and with Lily Li in the Chinese film industry uh, being the center of this, again, I say, um, I'll probably say emotional history 20 times since it's in the subtitle, uh, but I think that's a great way of showing the emotional history is through these revolutionary uh, melodrama operas that she was in, showing clips from those alongside archival footage of her with Mao is just insane. Uh, I don't know. He, he really, I, I want to say he touches on something, and then I don't know what the something is, but it definitely is effective montage. Well, I, I feel like I, um, like I, I, I don't feel like I kind of finished my thought from the last one last time I spoke. I think what I like about this structure is that, like, you know, with him hammering in, like, uh, you know, individualism on the rise, and like, you know, the different how that affects you know, people in different ways. And he, he tells kind of like a story, you know, the history, you know, emotional history of the world through like these individual stories, people like uh, Michael X, Zhang Shang, people uh, who, you know, wanted to change the system in some way and the kind of the inverse than the other people kind of like a lot of scientists um, who were like creating scientific theory, trying to create new things. And later there, you know, the tech, the science, from those discoveries being used for evil. So it's kind of a, I don't know, I, I like the individual framing because it makes everything much more emotional, right? You know, something like Michael X, right? You know, he was uh, someone who had revolutionary ideas, but also was, you know, simultaneously a, a gangster and never really escaped that. And like, I don't know, just all, these individual conflicts just kind of really sell the history even, in, you know, better. And I think there's something about, like, the way the individual conflicts, like, they're told through, like, uh, predominantly, like, the narration. Um, and, I, I mean, obviously the images go along with it. But I feel like the narration and that type of story builds out um, 
more like like obviously the drama and like uh, editorializing a whole lot in it but combined with the image I feel like really builds out a more thorough history of the time and especially how he like jumps from place to place to place it gives you like such an understanding of the moment and the era with ever having to do any like explicit like sort of uh like setting up this is what it was like in like the like the seventies or sixties or whatever. And the uh the recurring figures throughout, you know, whether they're intellectuals, scientists or political figures, I think he does such a great job at choosing very emotionally strange figures uh you get those guys uh what were kiri thornley and greg hill <laughs> those fucking bozos who made operation mindfuck which is just hilarious operation the most Blood epic Trump. thing yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah operation get one of these guys a dang girlfriend <laughs> classic history but of he- uh, the cia you know infiltrating exactly. the nerds and manipulating them you know Though I love how that approaches the JFK conspiracy, though, because it is kind of uh, the other side of the coin to how much we fawned over Ollie Stone's uh, depiction of that. I I wouldn't even quite say the other side of the coin, but he gets at something that he got at in hypernormalization. If you remember in hypernormalization, he briefly talks about uh, UFO conspiracies being planted by the U.S. to kind of distract people. And he talks about people building conspiratorial thought out of patterns in this rather than, you know, challenging the actual systems that are oppressing them. And I think that Curtis has been called like a conspiracy theorist, I think, by his detractors. And I I think that, you know, maybe I'm 100% wrong by saying it was the other side of the coin, because now that I'm talking about it, they almost seem to meet perfectly in the middle in being both quasi-conspiratorial, but more than anything, being challenge challenges of the structures that rule people, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 it's interesting to see, like, you know, with like JFK and like he really does go firm, you know, on the side, you know, that didn't happen. Like there wasn't a plot. But at the same time, he also presents all these weird coincidences with Harvey Oswald meeting like Thornburg and stuff like that. So it's, you know, even even what Curtis says isn't exactly law in, you know, in these movies. Sometimes he'll have asides and images that don't necessarily contradict what he says, but, uh, you know, gives a slightly different view. And, you know, also just like. You know how he, how he you're talking about how he chooses you know you know good emotional figures like the Operation Mindfuck guys, but also like where certain big figures in history kind of get their small little shout out. You know, like Nixon. I loved the aside from Nixon and him being paranoid. Um, you know, in his house, you know, recording shit all the time. And and you know, as someone who just watched uh, Nixon by Oliver Stone recently. Um, they're, they're in total agreement there about Nixon that Nixon was like a very like sweaty paranoid man who like thought everyone was out to get him and, it, and it's it's so funny like to hear Nixon you know saying like the elite are the enemy the press are the enemy professors are the enemy and stuff like that but at the same time being the most elite man in the world like uh, I don't know but it's just it's it just shows how uh, I think this is another thing Curtis highlights in this documentary very well, where a lot of people bet um, 
on the on negative things in the world and their cynical outviews kind of infecting society in negative ways and nixon's mm. negativity is just kind of funny i guess i don't know and that is yeah, he just needed positive vibes <laughs> <laughs> it's frankly positive psychology you know he was a little behind on that nixon had some of that positive psychology would have learned about how beautiful his jowls were <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he body positivity came a little too late, you know. If, if Nixon was if Nixon was listening to Lizzo instead of uh, I don't know doing conspiratorial rants, maybe he'd be a little oh, more chipper. Curtis missed it. Yeah, I mean the the positive psychology stuff. It's in the last part. I'm pretty sure uh, he he's got to put some Lizzo. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Wait, <laughs> Wait. Kind of. Kind of quick. I remember in the the trailer, the trailer for this, it ended with like a TikTok. That wasn't yeah. in the movie, right? Or was it? No, it was not. I was okay. I was disappointed. I was looking for that TikTok. I thought I think that... maybe he needed to uh, you know, <laughs> squeeze in some last second footage of fucking uh, Joe Biden's inauguration or whatever. Yeah, because uh, I think that's the newest stuff that's in it, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, if you well, I mean, one of the great uh, we got to talk about you know the great opening from part one. If you like this, you know, picture of Obama, you will love this yeah. picture of Biden, <laughs> and kind of, kind of showing that uh, you know culture has kind of been geared by these algorithms, right? Even our presidential choices kind of feel like uh, the next song on Spotify radio or something like that. Mm. Yeah, that that opening you know going that hard right away is hilarious because he kind of ditches that thread and then when he's wrapping up he kind of just says it as a second option like he talks about how toward the end uh, a possible future is giving up entirely on any notion of individualism you know and individual freedom or whatever or we could just return to kind of liberal stasis and you know we see a picture of joe biden and we're reminded of that opening montage uh, and I think that's probably the more likely one. Uh, but Curtis wants to put fear into our hearts with the first option or hope into our hearts with the third option of envisioning a new world, which, of course, is hilarious because, you know, so sometimes I guess you'll see Curtis compared to someone like Mark Fisher uh, and the the basis of capitalist realism versus the end of this movie where it's like, or we could envision what a new future could look like. And then he just doesn't go into what that even is because <laughs> it is impossible to envision a world after capitalism. It's easy, you know, uh, so it's it's difficult to to reckon with. And I think that him taking four and a half hours to get to a three pronged conclusion, all three of which are like, I, I don't know if that will actually be <laughs> the reality. Uh, it makes sense because of how scattershot uh, of an emotional history he presents. Well, it's I like what you're saying about um, in that like him bringing up like a thread from the first episode and like tying it together there at the end. I love how like just littered throughout uh, the series as a whole, there will be things that call back to uh, one another, like links between like I, I mean, what you talked about the one pre future that he presents where like everything is basically controlled by AI. I love how like that's like introduced like significantly early on. Like I was watching the, uh, the third episode today. I was hitting that one with a rewatch because I remember it leaving a big impression on me. And there is, uh, 
a part where he's talking about uh, the German police department using like computers to uh, like catalog like terrorists and like figure out their actions. And like when I was watching that at like first, it's like I only you're only understanding that connection uh, through the German like uh, terrorists and radicals who are trying to change uh, Germany. And you see that with how it links to um, the other radical stories he's telling in that one. Like Michael X is also included in that episode. And just like you take a step back now that I have the full context of it and I see like the way he traces like technology as well. It fits in in like a unique aspect in, in that individual story that we sort of see the development of AI and like Adam Curtis's like real intense fear of technology that I think is very well founded. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, oh, go ahead. I was going to just say, I mean, like it is interesting, you know, going through episode through episode, it is like, um, you know, episodes don't share the same structure. And I, I'm kind of thinking of how he wraps things around. Like, I feel like five in my head, that feels a lot more self-contained than the other ones. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. And like, um, it does the five, yeah. the montage at the end of five even is a film of its own. Yeah. I think. I mean, yeah. And like the, the way, I mean, the lordly ones so in the title, how it's brought up in the beginning and then, yeah, the montage of ISIS training at the, you know, and the new lordly ones we've, uh, we've esteemed, you know, very good stuff. And then talk about, you know, cause there are a few times where Adam goes insanely hard and the ending of five is, maybe the hardest <laughs> yeah <laughs> the ending of five is much like what we talked about the beginning of notre musique where you have that kind of cavalcade of shot reverse shot of like human atrocity and he he's connecting it of course to threads that he was pulling at throughout episode five but there's there's a cut from like well first before that montage there's like <laughs> him talking about uh the Iraq war and or, and Afghanistan and how we accepted it. And he says, you know, uh, after showing an image of Vietnam protesters, he says, uh, you know, but there were no protesters. And then he shows this like fucking fat white kid wearing a remember 9-11 hat. <laughs> and he's like, uh, there were no protesters because it was all about Chinese money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then right after that, it goes into that fucking crazy montage where it's like uh, you, you get the the founding knowledge on isis and then you get the the images of oh no sorry the i think the montage i was thinking of are actually at the end of four sorry mm -hmm. uh at the end of four you have the montage where it goes from the uh the facial scan recognition the facial recognition scanning to the kkk and then a cut to a police murder and then a few cuts later uh the chinese production of like a blonde baby doll or whatever uh, <laughs> and that's the montage that ends episode four uh but yeah the one that ends episode five has the kkk again uh <laughs> and then you have the guy like the the very end of it is uh I guess showing Donald Trump's campaign, but before you see Trump, even you see a guy at his rally wearing a Cubans for Trump shirt, yeah. which is such a great decision to show that and then cut to Trump. <laughs> I've noticed that too. I'm glad, I'm glad, you know, that stuck out to you because that, that, uh, yeah, that was, you know, very intelligent choice of image by, uh, Curtis there. 
I think well, he, it was also right after, or not right after. I mean, it's two hundred fifty minutes after he dispels the, you know, uh, anti-communist Cubans killing JFK conspiracy, among others. Go ahead, JT. Sorry. I just like, I mean, the way he represents, um, like famous images as well, like things like the Trump campaign. The way he reinvents like footage that I think has been done to death or moments. He like uses. Um, he has interesting polls for events that have been covered before. Like I think about his uh, presentation of 9-11. You never see the classic like towers falling style video. And he just breezes through that because it's like, I don't know. You can just assume that knowledge. Yeah, the, it is. The it is. 9-11 shot he uses is insane from that apartment balcony where you just see people running. And it quite literally does look like footage from the movie Cloverfield. Uh, where it's just people running on a New York street and you kind of see fog building and then you just see pure black approach the screen and it cuts to black uh, and it's terrifying. Yeah, he, he does that cut to black really well too. I think, uh, is it like some Russian being tortured or something like that? Or like mm-hmm. he, he uh, cho- or like, and he has the audio of that and that's, that's a real raw moment. Cause yeah, as much fun as, you know, we have in these documentaries, I feel like at least, at least one time, if not multiple times per episode, who will make you watch something that is very harsh and very, yeah. uh, you know, very, uh, but you know, that's, we got to sober up sometimes, you know, you know, you can't, can't all be pop music. Oh uh, yeah. The way he starts off, I think it's three with like the Malibu fire, yeah, like three, cell yeah. phone oh, footage. Yes. That's just like. Oh, God. (laughs) And I love how he teases that out, though, because it starts with that. go, And then, like, what we learn within five minutes of that is that a lot of contemporary climate science was just, like, based in trying to find a new weapon against the USSR, basically. (laughs) Like, we're going to use climate as a weapon. We might as well learn more about climate, you know. Uh, And it's it's so ridiculous. Yeah, that's one of the most insane cold opens you could think of uh, especially for us living you know very close by to the but whatever we don't need to get into our culture or coastal elitism yeah, yeah. our <laughs> emotional history of the world <laughs> the drought man it's crazy, crazy. <laughs> also in four the thread about live aid is just insane mm-hmm. I, I mean i had vaguely heard that narrative before uh, but I don't know the way he's able to frame live aid and the humanitarian movement as something so apolitical was so eye opening. Of course, then leading to the reveal that he was, you know, named uh, the guy who ran live aid was like then uh, given a government, a high government position of some sort uh, that. I, the details are already slipping away from me. I'm sorry. No, I mean, it, the, there's a lot that goes on. You know, in these movies, we're going to, you know, if we really want to learn everything, we're going to have to give these a few rewatches. But, uh, you know, it's just the thing. Well, also, yeah. I don't want to talk for eight hours. Well, yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just what, yeah, you could watch it. That's that's what it's for. You know, <laughs> just describe what happens in the documentary. But it basically, <laughs> by, by the time we get to like toward the end of part four, that montage we talked about earlier, we're basically going Godfather three mode where we're entering the global economy. And we get the clip of Bill Clinton saying, you know, the the age of big government is over, uh, which is hilarious. And dude, as much as like he 
very briefly dismisses any notions that Democrats are uh, pedophilic cabals, <laughs> as he would say. Uh, he loves showing that fucking footage of Bill and Hillary together that makes them look so evil. Like that <laughs> that one where he's just twirling Hillary uh, while <laughs> in the crowd. Oh, God. That, Blood. It's seething. That, it's <laughs> That reminds me of uh, in another one. I can't remember. It might have been Century of Self. He uses that clip of Reagan like playing with a balloon, I think, at a rally over and over again. Very good. Yeah. Very good image. Um, and, and I mean, I already compared the montage at the end of four to Notre Music, but this is also the one that deals in Sarajevo, like very specifically, much like that Godard film. And uh, the. Oh, and then so while he's dealing with ethnic cleansing in you know, with the Serbs and in Sarajevo and whatnot, uh, a new thread that he introduced in four uh, comes in the UK storyline, because I guess in this point in time, there's nothing really to report on, on the grand scale. So he goes micro instead and introduces us to Julia, a trans woman who is going through a lot of difficulties with the NHS, uh, with her transition. And they're like, it's an extension of the surveillance narrative that he's been uh, weaving throughout the way that the NHS hammers this woman. And it's, it's really incredible the way that he gives her story as much weight as the other like geopo- geopolitically intense stories that are happening in part four. And the way that also he keeps her story within part four as this uh, self-contained narrative. No, yeah, there's a great transition to that too, where I think it's, isn't it like a, a hey, what's going on? Did we get a hey, what's going on transition to her story? I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it also, though, it also links another th- thing that I've noticed throughout his work, but I think more so in this movie, anything else, he really goes after the psychologists in this movie, therapy, yeah. Yeah. anything like that. And he presents an interesting thesis with kind of like, uh, I don't know, just all the examples he gives of, you know, like, psychologist not being fair you know to that trans woman and just other things too where it's like i think it's even um like he he brings up theories throughout you know the thing kind of like uh isn't one of them that like yeah there's like a part of our mind that will never comprehend and that's kind of what drives us and that's that's something that's mentioned throughout a few episodes and then i love how in the last episode he presents it's like it turns out that probably was wrong and that yeah. like a lot of yeah. a lot of a lot of modern psychology based upon that is probably you know a little defunct too and it just really kind of uh i mean you know he's asking s- some dangerous questions here I about mean, uh, he, psychology and science too yeah he goes after the experts which yeah. i really admire and like mm-hmm. exactly for like what you're saying he like crafts a narrative so well by breaking out to tell other stories of other individuals and you get a real sense of like how like in his critique of uh science and psychology and like just the expert class he does it in such a beautiful way by showing like the theory that like the the ideology of the time and just the mindset he gives you uh, like a reason why they're probably wrong and it's the mindset of the time 
Absolutely. And I, I, I really like that around the part five, he, he starts to bring all of these storylines together. I mean, I said by the end of part four, China is entering the global market and so is everyone else, frankly. Uh, and so that brings these threads together. And then the US and UK threads are also brought together uh, very uh very cleverly i guess in a way that he does in hypernormalization which is in their dueling efforts in the middle east and the absolute destruction that they caused there and it, it goes all the way back to the oil stuff in the previous parts i guess we didn't really talk about uh there's of course an in- incredible images of the western communities that were built for oil executives where they have like these golf courses where they pool together crude oil to make putting greens Uh, just some of the most insane shit i've ever seen uh in terms of like pure wealth disparity like anyone any fucking you know leftist who wants to complain about golf courses uh that that don't let them see that that'll be the worst <laughs> animation that'll be god save my save my pure sport <laughs> from human rights uh go ahead <laughs> no that's i i like i like when uh uh curtis will just throw in kind of a garish detail to emphasize the you know the points he's been making um, another one of those like kind of small things that um, tra- you know kind of stand out to me is that that aside to like a footage of like this British household which has a a clock of a black woman you have to look in the eyes in order to tell the time with and like I don't know it's just it, it's uh it, it just small little asides like that really kind of uh, bring you know forward his point and I feel like that's one of the great pleasures of Curtis is like kind of like him digging through the archives, finding a weird clip like that, or, you know, kind of just like his love for, uh, you know, he wants to bring pop culture into everything too. And like, I, I think uh, his, his view on cultures in this movie is kind of interesting because he's not, he, he does propose that culture. Um, he does propose that culture can change the world, but only in a negative way. Like the only like the whole Tupac um, thread, kind of the whole point of that is that like you can't change the world through culture and art. I feel like that's one of the main points of that. But then you look at um, another great artist, D.W. Griffith, and uh, his film Birth of a Nation, which art you know might have the the biggest responsibility for starting up the KKK aside from the you know the pure racism in those uh, people's hearts. But uh, so I don't know, just a a very negative view of a uh, culture's impact on society here. Um, yeah. To touch on what you were saying about his like selection of footage. I like that. I mean, cause obviously like Curtis is uh, concerned with crafting some very beautiful images at points and just like gives you a lot of visual pleasure. I like that there are like different textures of like video quality which i feel like is something you would not see from like more of a like uh a a more standard documentarian i feel like would shy away from footage that isn't the best quality but like in this like you get some really grainy like digital textures on things that like that's the best he could find because I imagine it's like particularly obscure, but it just gives like, I don't know something else to the film. And then, I mean, like aside from like one images, he has more intention of like crafting. There are like 
uh, parts in three where he's doing like he splits the screen in like threes and there's like the eyeball that like shows across it like there is the uh the the flurry of dog psychedelic dog imagery <laughs> Uh, that's behind me as my zoom background as we speak he just like does these moments oftentimes in the like more lyrical asides where he just like shows you some insanely beautiful things no i mean absolutely one one of those like clips that come to mind and it's also kind of like uh where does he find this stuff but also at the same time it's like uh it's because the the clip i'm thinking of is where uh, I think it's in the fourth one. I might be wrong, but I think it's like set in Russia and we're just following uh, someone filming a bird outside of their car and we're just watching that. Just so very pleasant. And like kind of the glue of this movie is like footage shot from cars. These act as like a lot of like transition points or whatever. And like, I feel like, a, I don't know, it makes sense. That's a very individual action. A car feels like the, you know, the individual machine as you're uh, Absolutely. Driving, driving, you know through so well I, I, and i i could i could watch footage like that for hours you know what i mean sometimes i just you know train footage or something like that so i, I get that kind of i like the motion the motion of a uh you know driving but yeah oh absolutely there there's a shot in six that's actually in reverse and i didn't notice until like you pass someone walking by uh and realize they're walking in reverse uh but in china on this like dirt road it, from the back seat of a van and when I realized it was in reverse, I was immediately reminded of B. Gone's uh, Kylie Blues and the way that the tracking shot and movement works with time and history, really. And I, I think that Curtis's use of those shots is like, I'm going to say it again, an emo- it's the emotional <laughs> history. He's using whether it's a landscape or a, fir- a person's face against a landscape in the case of uh julia on the train in part four uh he he's using that as such like an expressive transition to add emotional weight to what is a very like removed and you may say nihilistic but or just uh a a look at the world that has a depressing outlook whether or not he's a pessimist you know Um, one, th- I, I think uh, one thing that's interesting because, uh, as you know, as noted kind of earlier in the episode, this is probably dispels you know Adam Curtis is a conspiracy theorist uh, theory. You know, he he comes out pretty hard against conspiracy theories. Um, fuck, I forgot what I was gonna say. Oh wait, no, no, it's I remember, okay. I remember. I remember. I was lying. I remember. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, I think the way he frames intelligence communities, especially in the last couple episodes, are just kind of um, like kind of ineffective and kind of like less. I mean, the, he shows the evil and he makes sure to mention that uh, the American CIA was involved, you know, with uh, overthrowing, you know, uh, leaders in a lot of countries. But like the emphasis is really kind of like on the, you know, not knowing 9-11 was coming, not knowing that, you know, um, you know, the Soviet, Soviet Union, Union was, was falling. Yeah. Going to dissolve and kind of like, just like the mistakes that were allowed to happen just so, you know, we could kind of save face and not look foolish, you know, especially with, uh, you know, that, that happens in America, but it feels 
feels like especially Britain, you know, and the the stuff that stuff that he gives um, about kind of like uh, the Britain Britain kind of feeling bad about its history, and then that kind of um, negative feeling transforming into like racist hate, like fear that they're about to be you know overthrown by other countries is is so fascinating. I mean, yeah. Um, part six is kind of a movie into itself. He kind of, I don't want to say he drops some of the threads, but it's, it's surprising, you know, you're 20 minutes in and you're like, this is mainly about Tupac. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like, um, um, I, I mean, his selection of interviews with Tupac, I feel like is great. And I feel like Tupac's like instant documentary bait, just cause he's such a, a passionate, speaker but like he picks he picks some clips that i i feel like i haven't heard before i just love the contrast between how he's speaking in the high school clip how like very like kind of almost clear-minded like kind of identifying the problems with society not exactly having the solutions but you know kind of feeling young and inspired wanting to change it and then kind of like the interview towards the end back end of his life where he's saying like i don't trust anyone like my own friends have like betrayed me like I like there's like fear is more valuable than love. Love has never gotten me anywhere. And it's just like, I don't know, just kind of like the way, the emotional toll of like these individuals trying to change systems, things within the system, you know, by how any other means um, they were doing so. And then seeing that, uh, you know, seeing them realize that they can't do so is crushing, you know what I mean? And seeing Tupac, kind of goes you know psycho almost as yeah yeah (laughs) i i mean you see that happen to like so many of the characters like you see uh interviews where it's like at the beginning of their lives where they're like relatively young and optimistic (laughs) and then they're just crippled by like paranoia and have sold out anything that they have believed in i mean that happens with like um i mean i guess you don't really see like interviews with michael x towards the tail end of uh his life but you see like other people like characterizing like his behavior and like um there's a woman who says like who feels like she he is like completely turned his back on like the black community but also in that episode something that i feel like because that's episode three and then tupac is the in the final episode it really gives you the sense of like how much history happens uh intergenerationally and how much history happens in people's lives because that's in episode three with uh Tupac's mother one of the uh Black Panthers in New York City and so by like sort of leaving that thread because he has like um clips from like a Tupac music video and that one he uses like a Tupac song and that one and just like there's a little space between that but you come back and you see that like uh, his mother has lived through all of that. It really gives uh, a full scale of how people feel history on an individual level. Absolutely. And I, I think that like uh, the, <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say, but I just looked down at my notes and I saw the words positive psychology. <laughs> I think some of the funniest <laughs> shit in this movie is when he brings that up and he just shows the advertisements and, just the stock footage of people smiling like fucking idiots. 
just some of the funniest montage in the entire 400 however many minutes is right there for me (laughs) but then he goes deeper into what china is in the 21st century and it's it's kind of a cynical look i will say some of our some of our tanky listeners may even uh, may even criticize the way that he characterizes China, but he basically characterizes it as a state that's only real uh, motivation is surveillance and money. Uh, it's it's a communist state that doesn't have you know revolutionary communism as their ideology and the. Uh, the little bit of capitalism that you can have is the ideology, I guess. And it's it's a very bleak view, uh, but he also doesn't view that as like the future of the world either. I feel like his view of China is almost like a dead end waiting for the next thing to happen. Yeah, his because uh, I think this is what makes Curtis uh, somewhat interesting because I think you would you would could say like he leans left, but like. I don't know, like he's not like kind of like uh, he frames the way he frames kind of China and Russia towards the end. They're kind of like places that kind of have tried communism and tried kind of like a democratic, um, you know, capitalism. And, you know, both were heavily corrupted. And so both citizens, you know, of each are completely disillusioned. And so, like, I feel like Curtis, more than anything, kind of politically... Um, what what kind of gets his political bell rung, you know, so to speak, is of kind of like, you know, thinking of a third way, so to speak. I mean, I think that's that's why I think how he brings up Gaddafi and hypernormalization as such a sympathetic uh, figure was as someone who was trying to you know figure out the world despite all you know all of the failures of a I don't know communism and capitalism in other countries for the citizens. So it's it's a it's not a real definable, uh, you know, dictionary level style of politics, but I think it fits in with uh, what he shows that most most citizens or just people in general don't have like a, a coherent political ideology based on theory. You know, it's a lot of it's emotional, right? Emotional history of the world. Hey. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's just someone who I think has a really good read of how fucked up things are and mm-hmm. can express that very coherently and just wants like a very vague notion of something better that is like in that I think like inherently left but just like wants some sort of hope I mean the Patriot Act stuff in part six is so heartbreaking <laughs> like it's Insane. it's devastating yeah. it's just like that was our way out of being controlled by Google was nine eleven not happening. You know, you messed up CIA, FBI, you should have stopped it. Well, I mean, the mm-hmm. talking about the wild, like just examples of uh, to emphasize his point. I mean, I'm the Roombas like taking uh, collecting data on people's houses. And of course, you know, this the is vibrator. This, the vibrator. <laughs> you could tell this to people at parties, you know. You got one of those couples vibrators, you know, the CIA is looking at your pussy dimension and jacking off to it. <laughs> is that, was that what they're collecting? They're like, who has the tightest pussy in America? 
<laughs> That's what the advertising companies want to know. They want to know what level of intensity their customers like a vibrating piece of plastic in their pussy. <laughs> I mean, Pokemon, the Pokemon Go stuff too. I mean, just yeah. insane. That's that. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar uh, with the work of David Dee's political cartoonist. Uh, but he, no. uh, he's. I mean, he was just like a psycho libertarian who would just draw like garish visions of like America as hell and like yeah. um, very entertaining stuff and like. He, he, a lot of it was like uh like bush uh, era conspiracies and a lot of them at the time were fema camps that walmarts acted as fema camps or whatever so that like i don't know basically with the idea like they want to round the americans up or whatever and you know i mean maybe it's not exactly clean cut like that but curtis shows us with pokemon go there's they're testing the waters out they're seeing if uh, we can't you know they can get us to go one place but you know that's why uh you know i'm, I'm strong i only play sports games so i, I it's not it's i'm not well, and i not... kill people in the war and on video games too but i mainly <laughs> just play sports <laughs> games because i'm a jock so, but you know when duty calls <laughs> yeah <laughs> you'll do service but um yeah i just wanted to shout out david d's mostly with that i guess <laughs> rest in peace he died last year damn well, I, maybe I should uh, elaborate on what I said about Google and the Patriot Act for those who didn't watch the documentary and won't or don't know this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because I feel like sometimes things I learned from Adam, Adam Curtis movies, I'll tell to someone and they'll be like, you didn't. Yeah, it's, you know, no, a I, normal. Per- it's just like maybe things that are embarrassing to learn from something like this. But <laughs> <clears throat> the fact that there were going to be laws made uh, to prevent the data mining uh, the data mining industry, basically, that Google invented were and were just wiped away with the Patriot Act after 9-11 is astonishing. Um, also going on at the time, uh, the, the night wars, the, my favorite thing in the whole thing. The, the wrestling type rallies being held in Russia where oh, Putin's those are new so bodyguards, cool. these biker gang guys roll through and then there's these elaborate presentations like to hype people up. They show images yeah. of like uh, the Illuminati triangle and like Obama and just <laughs> it's incredible. It's it's very funny and it's easy to just be like anti-conspiracy or whatever. Uh, but the atmosphere is unreal. I had never seen anything like that before. Um. So, speaking of conspiracies, he then gets into maybe the cornerstone of the inefficiency of conspiracy and the most relevant uh, example in our modern history, which is the last four years. Uh, The Trump presidency has been, you know, the liberal conspiracy of Russia and the conservative conspiracy that he's not doing anything because we have to wait for Q to do everything. Uh, And those two conspiracies kind of butting heads, of course, uh, only accelerates all the the real problems that are, that have been going on over the last four years. And I, I think the last 20 minutes or so of this are quite astute, but there's obviously some exclusions um, because like, I don't know. I feel like, uh, <laughs> like he, he does really a really good job at the liberal media's portrayal of 
what Armand White and others would call Trump derangement syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, the montage of liberal reporters saying that the walls are closing in <laughs> regarding yeah. Russia is <laughs> hilarious because it's just as good as Q people hyping up a new Q drop, you know? Uh, and, and I think he weighs those things pretty evenly. Uh, but the fact that he doesn't, me- and someone mentioned this in our Discord, and I thought he wasn't going to do it, but because uh, he doesn't mention uh, Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn at all in this documentary. Well, because he's not anti-Semitic. Mm. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I mean, I think like no. I... I, I no, but he does throw BBC under the bus, and I know that BBC did a lot of damage for Corbin. Uh, he he gets on BBC like he's able to criticize them for some stuff, but I feel like that's one thing where he could have gone a little harder on media portrayal of uh, a, a left ideology. I know? mean, I feel like he could expand that out later. I mean, like I understand, yeah, like he'll it get does, to it. Maybe it does feel like uh like surprisingly absent there but like i think well because he talks he about rushes how to the, the en- dueling conspiracies like negate any attention by politicians to the real issues which is yeah. very true but then you have to remember that maybe there are like two or three politicians in america that care about real issues maybe maybe not even any maybe not even any but maybe there was one that got railroaded out of running even if mm-hmm. even if his convictions weren't as strong as we thought they were maybe yeah. but like i i feel like he could have mentioned the the re- the repeated dnc debacle i feel like know? his exclusion speaks more so to the fact that those movements were kind of defeated than like like cuz i think he could have if he were angling at a sense of like there, like, cause he, he's on that, like we're at a very cynical like moment now where like sort of mm-hmm. all hope is like defeated. And I feel like so, like breaking off to them might like detract oh, from that. A trust little me. Bit. I, don't, I don't think, I, I don't think that most of his viewers would think that talking about Bernie, uh, getting fucked twice in a row would give them any kind of hope or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. In, in fact, I think it would contribute to his thesis. True. That the, the real issues are being ignored by the political establishment. Mm-hmm. Also, I feel like, but yeah, I'm not, I'm yeah. not one to say, Hey, Adam Curtis, throw another 20 minutes in your nine hour <laughs> movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, also just kind of reading his politics. I, he might, you know, and this might, you know, I don't know, but I, I feel like he might have been someone who didn't really had faith in any of those, you know, Bernie or Corbin succeeding in the first place, just with his focus on like, I don't know, um, people struggling for power and kind of like, I don't know, you know, he, he says it all the time. He does kind of, I think Curtis's politics feel, I don't know, more like populist than anything or something like that, or just kind mm-hmm. of like a, like like he's classic like almost water cooler stuff like the stuff that he really hammers home it's like the banks have taken control of like the political sphere and stuff like that so maybe he's just thinking if the banks have the control then stuff like i don't know political campaigns like bernie's and corbin's you know even as as close as they got you know were never going to be effective i don't know yeah i do like the part uh where he's talking about uh, the the black struggle in England in the 1960s and he says and they knew that they were fed up with uh, the, the reason that they had been displaced was the bankers and the landlords which happened to both be Jewish 
just the dramatic pause before which happened to both be jewish was just like oh yes not that there's anything wrong with that yeah <laughs> well no it, because i think he does get into something that again maybe it's not even a productive dialectic but the black power plus anti-zionism being like a combined force uh he lets it speak for itself kind of and the difficulties that arise from that and uh, i look i don't think he's one to call corbin anti-semitic if we're if we're getting down to his what we think his positions are on anything uh, <laughs> but he's not he's not quite a godard with it he doesn't have the jew card edited yeah in. oh uh, yeah no he's not gonna show <laughs> he's not gonna show nazi propaganda and then just put the word jew over it <laughs> Well, look, it was for a purpose. You could go back and listen to that episode. <laughs> I think the most shocking thing, though, is the way he ends this. I mean, it's, you know, of course, a great montage, but the very end calls back to a thread that he built up earlier about the torture of oh, Abu yeah. Z- Zabeda and the way that they tortured him and the damage that was done to his brain and the way that all of his memories just came flowing out of him in a completely scattered way not of any of it really made sense a lot of it was from movies and things that he thought was going to happen and he describes Godzilla at one point I guess uh and it's like yeah there's some irony to it that's funny but it's also obviously yeah incredibly tragic and he treats it with the weight that it deserves you know the the torture in you know uh the war on terror was fucking you know it was fucking gay like don't do this <laughs> and i mean i think it, it also speaks to kind of like the thread you know the ineffectualness of the intelligent communities for any side you know even the evil sides right because you have this guy who doesn't know anything and the cia or you know whoever you know whatever alphabet organization is like a uh or you know um you know, making this man stay in jail, even though it's pretty apparent that he doesn't have any information, you know, pretty much to not look like, you know, they're fucking up is crazy. And then you match it with this like very emotional story of like a man with a scattershot memory. And then, yeah, I think he really does give it the respect he deserves because I thought he was going to end it with like a TikTok or something just because I saw that in the trailer or something. Um, But yeah, like kind of it. Because he does kind of give a hopeful ending, but that's kind of a bleak undercut, I have to say. Like, uh, you know. Yeah, that ending, because the montage ends on bringing back uh, Abu Zubaydah after he had been tortured. You know, we show that long detour of him being tortured. We see this, like, recreation of it. Apparently, there was actually tapes of it, but they were destroyed. Uh, but then the ending montage just shows him being dragged back into Gitmo and, like just saying that his scattered memories are fading and it's just, I don't know. It's hell man. If there is a way to tell an emotional history of the modern world, it's one of a, of a scattered memory that has been damaged by Western imperialism and uh, the elites. <laughs> yeah. And the banks and the bankers. <laughs> Who both happen to be Jewish. <laughs> the Jewish question, Adam Curtis documentary. <laughs> now, this is just questions. Look, Adam, I'm just asking questions. I look, Come on the pod, defend yourself. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs>
JT, I know that you're a devout Curtis head and you loved this one. Any any final thoughts before we wrap it up? Um, yeah, I'm going to say this is like, I, I mean, throughout I've, I don't know, I've really been like, as I was watching it, I was hesitating to like fall, like to be as, lo- it, to be as in love with this movie as I was while watching it. Um, because it's like, this is the first new Curtis I've seen, uh, like immediately upon release. But I feel like this is like, I don't know, his masterpiece, like a culmination of so many ideological threads and things he's been working on throughout his career. And he does it in such an ambitious way and like plotting out all of these narrative threads while making it like very entertaining, adding a lot of like drama and stories uh, from real people's lives and just gives so many like powerful images and lines that will like stick with me in regards to like the the destruction of imperialism and I, I don't know you can like obviously criticize like Curtis's politics from a variety of perspectives but I think I, I what I don't know the point is not whether or not I agree with him he's like a person that sees things and diagnoses them as actually as fucked up as they are and presents the idea that maybe there could be some hope for it and does it in such a beautiful way with a mastery and understanding of image that uh, if you love the movies, why would you not love Adam Curtis? (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way to advertise. (laughs) (laughs) If you love movies, you'll like Adam. If you like movies you'll love adam curtis <laughs> that's what it should should say on the box <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> malcolm any uh summative thoughts yeah yeah um you know just kind of i was kind of mentioning earlier you know kind of following a thread through curtis's style and i feel like this one since it's a lot more image and montage focused in parts than some of his other ones, you know, I feel like something like Century of the Self is really good, but it's it does want to transmit some information, and this one does too. But more so, I mean, he puts the you know his goal in the the subtitle of the title, you know, emotional history of the world. There's a lot more, I don't know, like a home run moments, so to speak, a lot of like higher moments where he's kind of going for more uh, emotional swings, and he really connects on them for me. And like, yeah, so far, I would have to say this is his best thing, too, because I feel like um, a problem and where people kind of criticize Adam Curtis is like, and you know, this is a wrong way to look at movies, of course, but like they, uh, you know, they criticize it for not being, you know, politically lining up with what they believe or I don't know, just something that they believe to be untrue, he'll say or whatever. And I think with this one, it's less about, you know, what if he's saying is true, it's uh about how we feel about it and you know that matches well with um the message he kind of gives at the end where like i don't know he's kind of building up this thesis of like psychology where like uh the the stuff that the data they're collecting has nothing to do with like the emotional stories within our head but at the end he he kind of conflicts that and kind of proposes it's like well maybe maybe these what we do you know the way we think about the world is a lot more valuable than like i don't know the data the way the data miners value it and uh 
I don't know. I like that message. It, it it is that feels like it feels like one of the most positive things he said in a Adam Curtis documentary, <laughs> and I, I like it for that point too. So uh, yeah, um, Curtis getting emotional in this one, and I I'm all here for it because what's more emotional than montage? I really can't think of uh, anything. <laughs> Thank you for saying that because no, I, I really want to talk about some of my favorite cuts or at least yeah. one of them. Um, very early on in five, we see one of the revolutionary opera films that Jang Ching was in. And it's one of the women like aims down sight of her rifle. She pulls it up and then the cut where traditionally it would be maybe to her point of view or what she's shooting at. We then cut to drone footage baghdad 2006 and it's just a man like and uh like laying on the ground with a gun near him and you just see the subtitles of the guys like remotely somewhere in the u.s operating it uh just saying like we're just waiting for him to grab a weapon just grab a weapon man and like <laughs> it's just fucking terrifying <laughs> Uh, but that cut is just ridiculous and so jarring. And he's so good at like never fully going gimmick mode with the cuts, even though some people would accuse him of such. I think they always have such a weight in terms of like what it could possibly mean beyond just blending narratives together. Uh, you know, what if, you know, image A plus image B, like what the C image truly is. Uh between like the drone from i mean this one's pretty obvious but it's beautifully executed the drone i think it's toward the end of part three through china when he's first introducing the idea of uh exporting you know cheap chinese goods to america and you just see this drone through uh this chinese city i guess and then it cuts to footage from the empty mall project as he's describing uh the shift in u.s economic policy to chinese goods and you know going down the escalator uh into an empty decrepit mall just perfect uh maybe even too obvious but hey that's what we want in political cinema right <laughs> uh, also one of the great connections uh is I, i'm just listing off some superlatives in my notes yeah. uh great uh full circle connection for one episode is the clip of Dr. No, the James Bond movie early on when he's talking about MI6 and how uh, these spies modeled themselves after James Bond. And then uh, toward the end, you have uh, the Saddam Hussein biopic footage from that by the same director. (laughs) (laughs) That was, I also like how he mentioned that, uh, that uh that british intelligence agent who got killed in china how he'd ride around china with a 007 license plate very exactly yeah that's how he introduces that idea so (laughs) so amazing just the biggest bozos ever like that's one thing he's definitely not afraid of showing intelligence agents as just doofuses who like all of these people watch too many movies too like he watches too many movies Obviously, when a man is tortured for days on end and all he can do is describe Godzilla, like he, he wasn't even from an Amer- like a Western culture, but he still watched that many movies. Like the the images in culture, they don't have a good effect on us, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the way like I mean, also like sort of connecting those two threads is the point where um, 
a lot of the destruction that is caused through imperialism is kind of by accident in a way, or like it's against itself. Um, like with the uh, New York City Black Panthers, where the ones who were actually like determined to uh, lead out like a, a terrorist bombing plot were the guys that were like uh, plants and informants Crazy. who were there. Like, and he ties that together with the I think the police's story was that they were he was saying the Black Panthers were inspired by the movie The Battle of Algiers. Yeah, mm-hmm. dude. Awesome. I mean, hey, there's a positive influence. Yeah, it's not <laughs> yeah. as far reaching as the birth of the nation influencing the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> well, just that that revelation or that that whole moment where um, he's describing like the cops' involvement with black, you know, the Black Panther movement and how they wanted to do the most violent ones, and then you have that you know courtroom uh, scene described, you know, with them just feeling ashamed of like what they'd done but also like proud with like the good work, these cops proud of the good work that, and it's just like, I don't know what it's like. I don't even know what to make of that. Like that is like, one of <laughs> yeah. The what most... goes on in the mind of a person who's like, who is like actively trying to disrupt them for the cops, but is also like, wow, the activism and things we do with the black Panthers are nice. It's another one of those just like, he shows how crazy and broken people's minds can get that you can live a life like fractured like that. No. Yeah. I think, I think it just goes to his point that like people are politically scatterbrained or just all over the map. And it, it just, it, the way that comes up in society, is just kind of strange. And in that case, it's very sad and kind of just baffling for, I don't even like, I don't know the implications of like, I don't know, like, of that could go in many different directions. So uh, what a great factoid he brought to the table there. Well, I also love that connective tissue in the fifth one of, you know, since we brought up birth of a nation now, uh, all of these like fake regressive cultures, like they're like, Oh, let's go back to the good old days that didn't exist. And Mm -hmm. people made paintings of, and, you know, made classical music that sounded like the time. And there were folk songs and dances and stuff like that. And you have the, the folk villages of England where guys with early movie cameras were learning how to do folk dances and stuff like that. It's like, (laughs) ah, yes, all of our problems in Britain will be solved by learning the old folk dances. (laughs) But obviously those results, were much more evil in the United States when D.W. Griffith read The Klansman and saw the uh, the co- the photo cover with a, a hooded clan- a Klansman, frankly. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> well, I, I love the footage that kind of follows um, that Lordly Ones where he, doesn't he show like some like British skinheads doing that same dance towards the back yeah. end? Just uh, <laughs> the slickic little na- you know, nature of history. You gotta love that. Damn, I love when he he lets the the British boys get rough and rowdy in this movie. It happens a couple times. It's usually the most appalling shit that you see in this movie. (laughs) Skinhead punks are like just like ten year old homophobes or whatever. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. That reminds me of uh, well, Peep Show or whatever. Uh, Much oh, clean shirt, clean shirt. When they make fun of Mark for having a clean shirt. (laughs) But they're, they're saying harsher things. <laughs> Much harsher. <Yeah. laughs> things I won't be saying. Hey, man, you can't even say it on the BB Dang C. They, they censored it out of an Adam Curtis movie. <laughs> or maybe the archival footage was censored. That's probably more of the case. But 
Um, what was I going to say? I had one more thought. Oh, uh, the most cringe moment was when he dropped in Lua by Bright Eyes in the fifth episode. <laughs> Not an uh, overstand? Not an overstand? Uh, <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. I loved it. But I know that many will recognize it as cringe, and I will just have to accept that. Uh, uh, I thought it was very lovely and kind of funny and tongue-in-cheek, but... Uh, uh, maybe it wasn't tongue in cheek and he's actually that sentimental about the fall of the Soviet Union and the decrepit buildings yeah. of early capitalist Russia. Uh, I thought it was funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, you know, that makes me think of, you know, people who might've just been happy to make the documentary, right? Like, I don't know, Oberst, I don't, I, I have not listened to any Oberst in years, but like, I probably someone who knows about documentaries maybe has heard about Adam Kurz before. So He's like approached. He's like, "That's cool." I mean, I like my songs in there, but the Steve yeah. Bannon clip, I feel like he uses. I know Bannon's fucking creaming his jeans over being in the, in the. And it's like, if Curtis could have gone, I don't. I'm not saying this is hack, but like, you could have you could have given Bannon a good twenty minutes. Very interesting. I don't know figure in the the modern range of politics, yeah. but I I think that clip he uses just kind of sums it all up, though. You know what I mean? Kind of like. I, like how Bannon like is one of the few, I don't know, political figures who seems to, who explicitly states what he's doing and knows what he's doing and executes it very, you know, strange guy. Well, I mean, the, it's interesting. I, some of our listeners might not know that beyond his, you know, work as a, a political, uh, you know, guy, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, the Breitbart guy or whatever, <laughs> Uh, he also fancies himself a documentary film junkie, a propaganda film junkie. At yeah. That. And he he's made quite a few films. Uh, I don't know if any of our listeners have seen any of these. He's no Steve uh, Mnuchin. I, I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's I the next Steve director Mnuchin we're doing a bank Sully, check but... on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. There's so many crazy, you know, the battle for America, the undefeated, Occupy Unmasked. Oh, God. I thought that's... <laughs> <laughs> we need an Antifa movie, Bannon. Please, the streets are hungry. Oh my goodness! Uh, yeah, but he claims to take great influence from uh, Lenny Riefenstahl. Uh, but I, <laughs> I haven't seen any of the movies. I've heard them described as like uh, very bad and like Windows Movie Maker level. But I, you know, obviously people are gonna give him a hard time because of his politics. <laughs> well, he's gotta, he's gotta feel. Well, I guess I, he kind of got Trump elected, so he. he He's got to feel good about that, I guess. But he's got to feel sour about <laughs> Dinesh being a much more popular figure in that realm, kind of taking That's true. what he's doing and probably one of the only people to get those movies into like mainstream theaters. People go to the theaters Damn. to see Dinesh. Insane. We should do a double feature of uh, Adam Curtis and either a Dinesh or a Steve Bannon. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. That's 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 how you, we learn so much we become like the smartest people in the world we just that's combine us. those ideologies and go ascend we would that's being true centrists <laughs> elevated centrism <laughs> elevated centrism is when you smoke weed with bill clinton come on well, I guess we'll end it there so I can tell you guys that I smoked weed with Bill Clinton and Hillary's nephew once at a USC party. Damn. <laughs> and I, really? I, I asked him like five times if he ever smoked weed with 
his uncle Bill, and he kept saying no, but I kept asking. Uh, 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 uh. Well, I was going to ask, uh, did he inhale? Classic. Yeah, uh, classic. classic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I could keep that in. Yeah, I don't. It doesn't matter. It's not a yeah, crime, right. dude. Legalize it. You know how many? You know how many nephews that guy has? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what if baby daddy Clinton? <laughs> yeah, they're all nephews. <laughs> 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 um. Now I'm making plays. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>